It took 108 years for the Cubs to win the World Series, so you can understand maybe why these Cubs fans were so happy. It was 1908 when the Cubs last won the World Series, 108 years later. Last year, in November of 2016, the Cubs finally won the World Series again. A celebration ensued in Chicago like none other. Over five million people came out for that celebration in Chicago. Schools happened to already have been out on that Friday they celebrated. So the kids didn't have to go to school. I don't know, maybe fate there or something. Did you hear about the 108-year-old woman who was born two months before the Cubs won the World Series in 1908? Was a Cubs fan, an avid Cubs fan her whole life, listened to most of the games on the radio. 108 years later, she was still alive in 2016, when the Cubs won the World Series. She died one week after they won the World Series, as if to say, my life is now complete. <laughs> I am not making that up, all right? That is a true story. Watch this, you'll enjoy this. What a story, huh? Can you imagine going to your first game when you're 90 years old at Wrigley, and they say, come back in 18 years and you'll see the Cubs win the World Series. Well, we love to celebrate, don't we? Just like they did in Chicago last November. And, and why not, right? I mean, we should celebrate when something happens uh, that, that makes us happy. Um, a few years ago, uh, my son was playing in a golf tournament when he was in college, and my wife and I happened to be there on the day he was playing. And we were standing next to the green, and it was a par three. So he teed off and he hit his ball. We were watching it. It came up onto the green, took one bounce, and went in the hole. My wife screamed. And I let out a yell, and I threw my arms up in the air. And his coach, his, who didn't always, he wasn't always with him, but he just happened to be standing on the tee when Drew hit that shot. I looked at the tee, and his arms were up in the air. He was celebrating too. The next hole was actually right behind us. The tee off for the next hole was right behind us. And there were a couple of guys getting ready to tee off on that hole, and apparently one of them was just about in his backswing when we let out a yell, but it, fortunately he was able to hold it and all, but I turned around and I said, oh man, I'm sorry, we didn't mean to you know, mess you up, and he looked at it and he said, are you kidding me? I'd be yelling too. So yeah, we love to celebrate in situations like this. There's a picture of Drew. My wife happened to take it when he was pulling the ball out of the hole when he got that hole in one. So I said to Drew after his round was complete, Drew, hole-in-ones don't come along very often, if ever, so we got to celebrate. We're going to take you out to dinner tonight. We're going to go where you want to go, and you order what you want. Boy, did I regret that decision. <laughs> now, we don't celebrate very often, do we? And life's too short to not celebrate. So, in fact, coming this fall, September 9 and 10, that weekend here at the Ridge, we will have been in this facility for five years. We're going to celebrate, and we want you to know about that now. We'll tell you more in the weeks to come, because we just want to take a, just pause that week and celebrate what God has done. There are three of the most amazing verses in the Bible that are about celebration. They just all happen to occur in the same chapter of the Bible, too, which makes it even more intriguing. They're all about cosmic celebrations. They're about celebration that can take place 
in heaven. Celebration that's like none other. They're recorded in Luke 15, verses 7, 10, and 24. These three celebrations are described. Let me go ahead and read them to you right now. This is Luke 15, verse 7. It says, in the same way, there is more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and returns to God than over 99 others who are righteous and haven't strayed away. Now verse 10. In the same way, there is joy in the presence of God's angels when even one sinner repents. Now verse 24. For this son of mine was dead and has now returned to life. He was lost, but now he is found. So the party began. You read these verses and you just sense so much intensity. Not only in what is being said, this is being said by Jesus, but the celebrations, the parties that took place. Uh, and it leaves you saying, why so much celebration? What's the joy all about? God, it looks like, is actually throwing these parties. Jesus told these stories. And when you know the setting, I think it makes it not only more fascinating to hear about these parties, but it makes it profound. In fact, if you let what Jesus is saying in these stories penetrate into your hearts and minds today, you'll leave here a different person. It will change you. I remember many, many years ago going to a church leadership conference in Chicago, Illinois. It was at Willow Creek Community Church, and Bill Hybels, who's the pastor there, stood up and he gave a talk on this very chapter in the Bible, Luke 15. And it changed my life. It changed my life forever. It changed the way I saw church. It changed the way I saw you can do church. It changed the way I viewed people. You know, um, maybe at times I was even in that category of these religious leaders we're going to see in just a minute. But when I realized that um, how much every single person mattered to Jesus, it changed the way I viewed people. It changed me when I realized how much I mattered to God, that he wanted to have a relationship, a close relationship with me. So let's jump into this story. It's Luke chapter 15. Let me read you the first two verses, and this gives us some setting. Here's what it says. Tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus. This made the Pharisees and the teachers of the religious law complain that he was associating with such sinful people, even eating with them. Now we've talked about the religious leaders before if you've been here. These were the Pharisees, the teachers of the law. Jesus challenged them all the time with um, their traditions, with their thinking, with their hearts. They were the religious leaders who thought they were okay on the outside. They were really concerned that people thought they were okay on the outside, very proud of their righteousness. Josh did a great job of talking about them last week in the story, the parable he told. Very proud of who they were. And yet Je Jesus challenged them all the time because they thought there were the haves, and then there were the have-nots. And what drove them crazy was that Jesus continually hanged, hung out with the have-nots. And then we read Jesus would even eat with them. 
And this just sent them through the ceiling to think that Jesus would actually eat with people like this. In fact, the, the accusation that Jesus gave to this, from the, Jesus received from these religious leaders, probably more than any other accusation, was that he hung out with the wrong kind of people. He hung out with sinners. So I want to challenge you with this question today, and it's this. The people that you see around you that maybe you don't care for, or maybe you disagree with, or with whom you see things differently, do you see them like Jesus sees them, or do you see them like the religious leaders saw them? And we'll talk about that as we go. Now, if you were Jesus, and the religious leaders accused you of hanging out with the wrong kind of people, and that was their accusation to you over and over again, how would you handle that? You know, you might want to get in their faces a little bit, and Jesus did that from time to time. Maybe you'd want to take to social media and get the word out just how wrong you know, these religious leaders are. But what made Jesus the master storyteller, what made Jesus so effective is how he approached this. What he decided to do in his approach was to tell them a story. And he told them not one, not two, but three stories in a row. This is the only time in the Bible where we have it recorded that Jesus told three parables in a row, like in rapid fire succession, one after the other, back to back, to back, that all have the same point, that all have the same theme to them, that all have the same takeaway. It tells you just how deeply Jesus cared about this topic. And we're going to look at that this morning. Three parables, the same point to all three of them. There was a parable about a lost sheep, or a story. There was a parable about a lost coin. And there was a story or a parable about a lost son. Three in a row to make a point. Now, I want you to imagine this. We're going to start reading the first story in just a second. But before we do that, Jesus has been accused. He's been criticized by the Pharisees, the religious leaders, for hanging out with the wrong kind of people. And I just want you to picture Jesus taking a deep breath, almost like a sigh, like and then he starts telling them the first story. It's about a sheep. Here's what it says. Verse 3. So Jesus told them this story. If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them gets lost, what will he do? Won't he leave the 99 others in the wilderness and go to search for the one that was lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he will joyfully carry it home on his shoulders. When he arrives, he will call together his friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me because I have found my lost sheep. In the same way, there is more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and returns to God than over the 99 others who are righteous and haven't strayed away. Now, I think we would all admit that this is a pretty valuable sheep, isn't it? Logic would say, don't leave the 99 to save the one. Why would you risk danger for, by leaving the 99 for just one sheep? Almost no one would do this. I'm not sure a shepherd would leave 99 sheep unprotected to search just for one. And that's what makes this story so captivating that Jesus was telling us. It has you asking the 
question, what kind of shepherd would do this? He searches high and low for the sheep. And when he finds the sheep, he actually calls his buddies together and throws a party for the lost sheep that's been found. And you're asking yourself the question, really? I mean, for a sheep, a party? My son has a golden retriever dog named Lance. He's two years old. And Lance is a great dog. Um, on Lance's birthday, he actually gets presents. I don't condone it. I'm just reporting it, okay? Here's a picture of Lance. You can see well, Lance. And if you're a dog owner, you probably get it, right? I mean, would you get a dog like look like this, a birthday present? Um, he gets presents from my son, of course, his dog owner. But on his birthday, he usually gets presents from my wife. And he also gets presents from... My son gets presents from his sister for the dog, whom they refer to as Lance's aunt. Okay? Yeah, it, it's gone way too far. <laughs> However, in this story that Jesus was telling, this was a sheep. This was not a purebred golden retriever who gets birthday presents. This sheep was one of a hundred, not the family pet. This was a dirty, smelly, directionally challenged sheep. <laughs> but a sheep got a party. Why? Because he mattered that much to the shepherd. Before we move on, you need to understand this. Jesus' point is that God may very well do irrational things to search for you because you matter that much to him. It's pretty irrational to give up your one and only son to die for people who don't deserve it and sometimes don't even care unless you irrationally love them. The next story that Jesus tells is about a lost coin. I'm going to read it to you starting in verse 8. Here's this story. Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Won't she light a lamp and sweep the entire house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she will call her friends and neighbors and say, Rejoice with me because I found my lost coin in the same way. There is joy in the presence of God's angel when even one sinner repents. Now, at first glance, this may not appear to be a big deal to us. It may not appear to be much. When we think coin, sometimes we think nickel, dime, quarter, this probably represented 10% of her entire estate. It was a lot of money. So she, she searches the house until she finds it. You get the impression that she doesn't even rest until she finds it. Why? Because it had so much value to it. It warranted not only a search, but a party when she found it. But then Jesus comes to the third story. Now he really begins to turn up the heat. So far we've had a sheep and we've had a valuable coin. This story coming next is about a person. Not just any person. This story is about your kid. It's like with each story, Jesus just keeps raising the value. A sheep, 10% of your estate, but now it's your child. 
You probably know this story because traditionally it's called the prodigal son. It's about a son who rebels against his dad. He runs off from home. He blows his entire inheritance. Then when he's destitute, he has nowhere else to go. He returns home then to his dad. You wouldn't blame the dad for disowning him, right? He disrespected his dad. He took and he blew all the inheritance. He had no use for his father until he was desperate. But what the dad do? You guessed it, he threw him a party. Wise parenting might say, let him prove himself for like a year, then throw him a party, right? Not this father. Let me read you part of this story. This is Luke 15, 20. So when he returned home to his father, so he returned home to his father, and while he was still a very long way off, his father saw him coming, filled with love and compassion. He ran to his son, embraced him, kissed him. His son said to him, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy to, of being called your son. But his father said to the servants, Quick. Bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet and kill the calf we have been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast for the son of mine was dead and has now returned to life. He was lost, but now he is found. So the party began. Another party. That's three. A lost sheep, a lost coin, a lost son. With each parable, the intensity grows. One was an animal, the next was in a part of an estate, the third one was a father's own son. The sheep was one of a hundred, the coin was one of ten, the son was one of two. I lost my keys a number of years ago. It just had two keys on the ring. One was for our house, one was for the church. And I think I lost them when I was out mowing our yard sitting on the mower I think they just slipped out of my pocket and we mow about two acres so it was kind of like finding a needle in the haystack but nevertheless my wife and I looked we searched and we searched and we searched we never did find them and it drove me crazy that I couldn't find them but I've also lost my wallet now that takes it to a different level doesn't it your driver's license your credit cards I had a $50 gift card to Walmart that I had yet to use. And, you know, that's a helpless feeling when you lose that. Now, the good news is someone found it. Someone else had taken it, and they had discarded it by throwing it out their window. It was lying in the middle of the road. Fortunately, the credit cards were still there. My driver's license was still there. They had taken the cash. They had taken my $50 Walmart gift card. But at least everything else was intact. And I actually told that story in church once many years ago. And a $50 gift card to Walmart showed up in my church box the next week. I, I kid you not. It was incredibly thoughtful to someone. Although it made me feel kind of bad because I did not tell the story thinking someone would do that. That wasn't my motive at all. Although afterwards, I kind of wish I'd said it was a $100 gift card. <laughs> One time we were vacationing in Florida and we just happened to be at a Walmart superstore. Our youngest son was about three years old at the time. We turned our back for just a moment and he was gone. We were frantic. We searched for him. We yelled his name. We couldn't find him. Finally, we went to the front of the store and they announced that code Adam. They locked down the place. Fortunately, my wife had taught him well, even though he was only three. And he knew that when he was lost, even though he was scared, he needed to find an employee in the Walmart. They brought him to the front of the store and we re reunited. 
Now, losing a kid in Walmart when you're out of town and you can't find him takes loss to an unimaginable level, doesn't it? To this day, there are times where my wife, if she remembers or tells that story, she'll tear up because it takes her back to how she felt when he was missing at that moment. So do you see what Jesus is doing in Luke chapter 15? With each story, he just raises the bar. He's upping the ante. What an adept and skillful way of communicating how much every single person matters to God. The perceived scum that the Pharisees looked down on, that Jesus ate with, they mattered that much to him. As you read these three stories, all in the same chapter of the Bible, three common threads begin to surface. You see them in all three stories. All three threads show our value to God and how much we matter to Him. Here's the first one. Something of high value is missing. Do you remember losing something of high value to you? The greater the value, the greater the search, right? What's the most valuable thing you've ever lost? Think, think back over it. The most valuable thing you've ever lost. A ring, a wallet, a phone, a passport in a foreign country, a child. Do you remember how you felt? You might have done irrational things to get it back, just like a shepherd who would leave 99 sheep unprotected and alone to go find the one. When something of high value is missing, you will do whatever it takes to get it back. Here's a second common thread in these three stories. There's no rest until what is lost is found. When you lose something of great value, something that really matters to you, there's just not much rest until you can get some sort of resolution. That's just the way it is. It was true for the shepherd, it was true for the woman who lost the coin, and it was especially true for the father whose son was wandering. I mentioned a couple minutes ago that our son has a golden retriever named Lance who lives with us because our son does. And you know, I like dogs, but actually I like them a little better when they're someone else's dog. However, Lance is just about the most likable dog I've been around. Maybe you've heard, I've heard that about golden retrievers. You just cannot not like him. One evening, we were gone for several hours, and we got home pretty late. It was about midnight. We keep Lance in a confined area of the house when we're gone. We have child safety gates to keep him inside there. And when we got home, the gates were open. Apparently, we had forgotten and left them open, and Lance was nowhere to be found. So we searched the house over. We called his name. We yelled his name. No Lance. And then I had this sinking feeling that before we had left home earlier that evening, we had left him outside inadvertently. We had just let him out right before we left to go to the bathroom, and we had forgotten to bring him back in. And I thought, maybe he's run off. He was about eight months old at the time, and we lived in the country. And I knew what that dog meant to Zach. My first thought was, we're not going to get much sleep tonight unless we find Lance. Well, good, good news, eventually we found him. He sleeps with our son, Zach, and since the gates, those child safety gates were open, 
He had actually gone up to Zach's room and was sleeping on Zach's bed. I guess he just decided he didn't need to come when we were calling his name because he had already turned in for the evening, you know. We were looking all over the house for him and he was sprawled out on the bed. Thanks a lot, Lance. Now we felt that way about a dog. A shepherd felt that way about a sheep. How much more do you think God doesn't rest until he finds you when you are wondering? One other common thread, a third common thread in this story, and it's this. When what is lost is found, great celebration takes place. You can't miss it when you read these three stories, can you? The parties. Jesus says that's how much excitement, joy, and celebration takes place in heaven when one sinner repents. That's mind-boggling, especially when you consider the sinner could be you or could be me. A celebration in Chicago when the Cubs win the World Series cannot begin to rival what happens in heaven. We have a God who loves people. In fact, let's personalize that. We have a God who loves you and loves me. So much that he can't stand it when his relationship with us is broken. We have a God who continues to seek people out because they matter that much to him. He'll even do irrational things to search for you. Having his one and only son leave heaven to come to earth to die for us was irrational. But that's what love will do to you. We have a God who throws a party in heaven every single time a lost person is found or comes home. What's the takeaway? It's really clear in Luke 15. It's this. Lost people matter to God. That's you and that's me. Our vision as a church is to do whatever it takes to reach our community for Christ. Why? Because God is a whatever it takes kind of God. How could that be any clearer than Jesus makes it in Luke chapter 15 of the Bible? Now for those of us who are followers of Jesus, that means we have to let the kind of God we have change how we relate to others. People whom God cares deeply about. Our tendency as followers of Jesus is to move towards church people. It's more comfortable and more familiar. But God has placed people all around us who need to know what we know and what we've experienced, how much we matter to God. So who is it for you? Is it a neighbor? Is it a co-worker? Is it a family member? What are you doing to intentionally build a relationship with them so you can share with them what the Jesus you know about is like? Can I just kindly get in your face a little bit if you're a follower of Jesus? If you're not doing that intentionally and regularly, you're not doing what you were called to do as a follower of Jesus. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, you need to know that God loved you so much that he sent Jesus into the world to die for you so that you can have a relationship with him. Jesus, God wants to have that relationship 
with you. Jesus wants you to be free from your past and to give your life purpose and meaning, knowing how much you matter to him. Here's the, perhaps one of the most well-known verses in the Bible. It's John 3.16. It says this, For this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. If you've never given your life to Jesus to experience forgiveness of your sins and have a relationship with God, you can do that. In fact, you can even do that this morning. You can just tell God that and sincerely mean it. I would ask that you bow your heads for just a moment. And if you would like to do that this morning, you can pray this to God silently. He understands your thoughts. You don't have to pray this aloud, but you can say something like this. God, I know how much I matter to you. I know I've sinned. I know I've lost my way. But that you've been searching for me. Thank you for sending Jesus to earth to die for me. Right now, I want to accept what Jesus has done for me. I want to surrender my life to him. I want Jesus to lead my life. Amen.